Public Intellectual is brought to you by the Forever Dog Podcast Network. You can find my show and more original work at foreverdogpodcasts.com. And Public Intellectual now has a Patreon. If you've been enjoying these weekly episodes, you can consider donating at patreon.com slash publicintellectual. You give us money and we'll give you some stuff. That stuff, inevitably, includes a tote bag. But we're working on other ideas and if you have a certain desire, let us know your desires and we will we'll try to work them out. So again, patreon.com slash public intellectual. Over 30 years ago, Joanna Russ wrote How to Suppress Women's Writing. I was recently asked to revisit the book in order to write the introduction for its reissue, something I was very excited about. What I had been hoping, though, was that the book would be out of date and irrelevant. After all, feminists have made strides in the last 30 years. We've expanded the canon, somewhat, to include women writers, and we have academics and writers who are actively working to document histories that have been forgotten or occluded. But a lot of it felt alarmingly fresh. The way women's work is written about by the establishment, but also work by writers of color, queer writers, international writers, and so on. All the ways we find to dehumanize people and dismiss their work. So someone will call their aversion to reading any work by queer writers as being just a matter of taste. Or the way I've seen Mary Shelley's husband share credit for Frankenstein. Or the way I've seen Jane Austen referred to as a spinster. The way I've seen Jamaica Kincaid's work dismissed as too autobiographical, and so on. One of my favorite things about the Russ book, though, was her documenting how, since the establishment and the academy is not going to talk about the work that is important to us, we find other pathways. Girls Xeroxing Emily Dickinson or June Jordan or Alice Notley poems to send to each other. Girls writing fanzines for riot girl bands girls passing material from hand to hand, this sort of underground exchange of what is good and what is important, since the mainstream is telling us only boys are important. And this is how I found Tori Amos, through zines and mailing lists, and copying bootlegs onto cassette tapes by hand, and mailing them with cover art we made ourselves out of glitter and markers and Lisa Frank stickers. The mainstream did not find Tori Amos important, or even anything less than thoroughly embarrassing. And I wanted to talk about how she, and so many like her, was sidelined despite being vitally important to millions of girls and gay boys and the very, very rare straight dude. So I asked my friend, who asked to go by her social media name, Common Gore, to talk about this denial of canonization for one of the weirdest, wildest, and best artists of the 90s. So last year, Boys for Pele was re-released. Um, and I did actually think that there was going to be some sort of 
larger awakening isn't quite the right word, but reckoning about the fact that this album happened and had a huge impact on, you know, that, that record sold millions. And for somebody um, like Tori Amos, who has sold millions of records, there doesn't seem to be a place for her in popular culture, except for maybe as a joke. There doesn't seem to be an understanding within music writing or in popular culture writing in general of who this figure is and what she accomplished. She's just kind of treated as um, this weirdo freak, you know, fairy girl princess thing. Um, And I was really disappointed that the 20th anniversary of Boys for Pele didn't bring something else out in the conversation. Yeah, and if people are writing about her and they were writing about the reissue as press, um, it's either gay men or women. It's never the sort of the guys in the music industry. Um, I mean, I it's not in a way surprising because this was how it was released back in 96, right? I mean, I wasn't around then. You know it better than I do. And I sort of spared myself the experience of going back and reading. I think there's a very famous Rolling Stones interview. Yeah, Rolling Stones spin kind of every sort of major music po- uh, publication. And then, I, and then, like, UK press, I think, got on it. And then the fans really liked it. So it was a kind of a lull in the beginning, and then it blew up. I think of Pele, like, in three main ways. Um, the fact that it sort of marks a moment in her career where everything sort of shifted, uh, and the record um, sort of looks at her past and also the piano's past through the harpsichord. Uh, and it's in a church, you know? Um, so it's, I mean, yeah, Little Earthquakes was her diary in some way, but this was really going back to her roots and working some stuff out. So it was, you know, a pivotal moment. And then also for her career, um, not only as an artist, um, it was like, I'm going out on my own, uh, saying I'm going out on my own to the record labels. Um, and I guess that it, this, you know, doing this also affected the rest of her career, having her own studio, um, working alone with a, you know, close group of people. And then also, um, what it meant for her that, you know, what voice or Pele means, you know, um, whatever, like throwing men into the, you know, fire and roasting like, you know, roasting them like marshmallows or something. Um, you know, what also what happened to that moment and what happened after that moment? Yeah, I mean, that Boys for Paley was the first, I think it was the first record that I bought on the release date of, and I'm making my friend Christian drive with me to the mall 45 miles away because I lived in the middle of nowhere um, to go to the Sam Goody and buy Boys for Pele um, on, on CD. And I was 
God, how old was I? Uh, 16. I must have been 16, um, yeah, which I think is... 16. <laughs> yeah, it's, um, it's a weird age to come to that, I think. Um, probably a really great age. I mean, I was talking about this with a friend of like um, sort of material we were um, listening to and reading to before we had ever had sex. Mm. Um, and how that maybe helped us slash did not help us. Um, Boys for Pele was definitely one of these albums of like, oh, fuck. Like, <laughs> this is what... Uh, okay, so setting up this kind of romantic expectation of, um, you know, a comparison of falling in love to descending into the underworld, which is... You know, yeah. yeah, the basic storyline of Boys for Pele is Inanna descending into... Um, the underworld. Um, but also I was reading Kathy Acker and I was um, listening to the Afghan wigs, also very sort of dark representations of sexuality and romance. And so in the way that you and I have talked about, so I, you know, I do a tarot card draw and I get the devil and I ha end up having a bad day mm. is the fact that you pull, you're having a bad day because you're expecting it because you pull the devil is my romantic history a total fucking nightmare? Because before I had even had sex, I was listening to Boys for Paler. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's the same for me. So we can, yeah. <laughs> you know, this podcast can be about, you know, discussing whether it's ruined or not. Um, yeah. I don't know. I mean, um, I, I always, when I, I like to... I like uh, reading Tori talk about albums and also especially past albums because she kind of never tells the truth in the moment and it's always sort of looking back that she reveals something. And I think it was piece by piece, which you hate, but I hate too. Um, she was saying that the Pele is where the voice was unleashed. And I guess that's true because, I mean, in a very physical way, her voice became sort of bigger and sort of cap more capable in some way. And also, like, I guess what it sort of means for her, finally being able to sort of uh, say things that she's never been able to quite say and, and admit to herself. I don't know. I think that kind of... And of course, the Tor I mean, like, listening to a Tori Amos album is never complete without like listening to the bootlegs and like going into the tour and following it. Um, I don't know. I think it didn't ruin it. I mean, it taught me stuff. Um, yeah. <laughs> why do you what? think it ruined? I mean, why do you specifically think that you it ruined it in some way? Um, I don't know. Because it was far too early. Yeah, maybe you should have a kind of um, naive expectation that things might go well, but maybe that's not true. Like maybe that's maybe that's actually the wrong the wrong thing. Um, maybe you shouldn't. Maybe you shouldn't be um, naive. I mean, I think about sort of you know um, what pop music is doing now versus what it was doing sort of twenty years ago. Um, because there was a much sort of darker um, 
influence in pop music in the in the sort of mid 90s because you had grunge but you also had the the sort of um really capable and interesting uh women singer songwriter thing going on um and that and had also, like huge record companies behind them so yeah, they could be and, doing a weird thing and it would be like you know they would be darlings for it yeah and they would get money and support and there would be a tour and you know um even i got to see in the middle of nowhere um, I got to see PJ Harvey live. I got to see Tori Amos live, Babes in Toyland. Um, really sort of interesting, weird bands were making it into, you know, the heartland of America. Um, yeah. But now I listen to pop music and it is sort of um, returned back to this very sort of 1950s um, naivete about love. Hmm. Um, and everything is great. And I just like your face and, you know, that kind of stuff. Um, shallow and yeah. Yeah. And sex is the dark place now, but love was a really dark place in the nineties and pop music. And, um, so I, I, yeah, I go back and forth on if that's good or bad. Is it good to go into love, um, naive or should you know that it's a, as destructive as it is, as it is creative. I think, I mean, she had that moment with Winter, you know? I mean, she had, she'd written Little Earthquakes and then she sort of walked towards that moment, I guess. So, um, but also, I don't think Boys for Pele is completely about, like, uh, sexual relationships and love and all of that. It's about kind of life, you know, that kind of force that, sort of controls or sort of um, shapes the rest of the stuff. So to me, it feels like a very sort of um, gritty life force kind of thing. That's what it evokes in me, you know? Um, So I don't sort of um, categorize it as a dark love thing. And I don't listen to it as a dark album either because like, you know, Father Lucifer and Agent Orange and, you know, um, there are ups there too. Um, but also, uh, to answer your question about the dark, tortured, um, love thing being like public, I don't, I, I think... I think it's good that someone's like digging around that issue, like someone's working on it and uh, putting in an album or in a book or whatever. I think that's always good. Um, And now I think people are doing it too, but it's not in the sort of same comfortable corporate way um, in that way that was happening in the 90s. Yeah, I mean, at the time um, that the album was released, you know, she was very public as far as this is um, this is my breakup with my long term boyfriend album. Um, oh, what? You know, we don't know. <laughs> yeah, no, we don't know. <laughs> Poor Eric, though, if he took all the shit. For <laughs> I mean, he took all the shit, and also, um, I don't know. Like she, he went on to not have a. Yeah, not have not really have a career. 
but yeah, no, it was, it, was, it was this very sort of public sort of this is my breakup album kind of thing. Um, and it was always framed in that way, which I found, um, well, when you're 16, um, it's nice to have that, to feel that sort of intimacy with somebody to, with a, you know, with a musician and to feel like, you know, what this is about and you know something about their life, which she was yeah, always. Especially when you don't have a life. Yes. Yes. <laughs> so yeah. instead of experiencing your own breakup you can experience somebody else's vicariously um yeah or yeah. something anything. i mean anything feel i mean like fits in the veiling of like blood roses you know mm-hmm. anything yeah that was i mean there are a couple songs that um from that album that i've that's still make me have to catch my breath sometimes um and blood roses is definitely one of them um with that horrible um amazing last line of sometimes you're nothing but meat sometimes that that still still gets to me um what else um horses of course and then professional widow sometimes i lose my mind listening and the to original that. version too yes yes not yeah. the um yeah the remix yeah. um but yeah boys for paley was also like the first time when we, i think we sort of her fan base understood that she was actively being fucked with by her label yeah because of um all of the different versions of that album that came out because it was the yeah, first the version. Time. Yeah. Sp- springtime wasn't there and Tulula was placed with something else. And yeah. Yeah. It was a tor- terrible sort of um, remix of, of Tulula and the remix of professional widow and yeah. Springtime uh, got left off. Um, and definitely that was when she started being sort of public about her antagonism toward um, record labels. Her, yeah, which I think played a part and we'll we'll sort of put a pin in this for later, um, but uh, played a part in sort of the downfall of her career um, in the sense of um, she became antagonistic, I think, to the point of sort of sabotaging her records and um and so on and so forth but her um, fans. yeah yeah and her fans took the sort of the blow for that um yeah. but as now somebody who works within you know an industry like an arts industry um it was also sort of i think helpful to see somebody else go through some of the on a larger level uh larger scale uh problems that that I've had with publishers and so on. Yeah, I always think of it as like a sort of progression starting with Little Earthquakes because, you know, there she was sort of trying to break in, wasn't sure about like a second record. And then with the second record, she got Conflict Girl, so it was a hit. And people were behind her. And um, I remember like this Bob something record exit executives like describing her as you know um some xy and then you know good qualities about her that they're behind you know uh, as an artist 
And this last one was sensual magnetism, you know? So um, I always wonder about that moment. Um, like, I, I guess they were aware that she was some kind of a sex symbol to a group of people, but they didn't really get it. Um, and so I wonder if, like, comparing her to, again, to PJ Bjork, uh, she was always more sort of pushed as a commercial thing, maybe because of, you know, her predecessors playing the piano, like some kind of an Elton John figure or something like that. But um, there was that... Um, I think the record companies always misunderstood her and no, nobody knew what to do with her, you know? And if they did for a while, it was like by surprise. Uh, and whenever she gets into this sort of, um, you know, like reactionary relationship with the record companies, the work suffers because she doesn't want to give songs to them because uh, that's why, I mean, her discography is filled with sort of filler albums to I mean okay it's too much but like Strange Little Girl is totally a filler album to like get rid of her contract so she plays that game she never completely completely leaves them but um she like tries to open up a certain kind of place for her and yet sort of play their game yeah, and um, it's always funny to me because she always sold records. Um, yeah. And, and so it was always out. a thing of like how much more they need. Yeah. Um, but as far as like the kind of lack of her place in... Um, yeah. Um I mean, it's crazy to me that she doesn't even have a... She, none of her albums are on the 33 and a third series. With so many fucking mediocre dude rock records that have whole <laughs> books devoted to the subject of, you know... Write, write about them then, like, just as mediocre and boring. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but it's amazing to me that, that even sort of that level of... Um, acceptance and understanding hasn't hasn't happened and i was wondering something you said earlier about um how it's usually just uh uh the gay community and women who write about her like so i guess we are still in this place in our culture where in order for somebody to be taken seriously they have to be written about by men i mean is that true do we still yeah. think that that's true i don't know i mean I mean, I, I'm, for me, I mean, that's not important because, like, me caring about her is sort of it's not affected by a man writing about her. But I don't know for other people, maybe. Um, maybe they need, I mean, tastemakers are still, like, they, they're waiting for the pitchfork guys to, like, clap for her or something. Um, but I think, like, with Unrepented Geraldines, like, something changed. There was, like, you know, handing a certain kind of legacy to her. You know, like like how it sort of happened with PJ and Bjork too. Um, I don't know. She was the press about her changed, and people stopped being embarrassing about her. Um, and I think that has that has to do with um, a change in her career that she sort of like took care of 
in some way because she was like having a thing for three whole albums. What do you mean by thing? You know, bad albums. <laughs> <laughs> the BQ Poor, American yeah. Doll Posse, abnormally attracted to sin. Yeah. And, and midwinter, midwinter, midwinter grasses, yeah. which is another one of those sort of filler, filler albums. Yes, yes, yes. Um, yeah, I mean, part of it is, um, the, I mean, part of her legacy is always going to be the live shows, um, which are not for beginners, right? And, And she's sort of clear about that, that if you're, if you're there, then you have to accept what happens to you in that space. Yeah, the, and, albums, the albums are sort of like a gateway to the shows. You know, whether you're actually able to go see her or listen to the bootlegs, it's about the shows for her. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I mean, when I started um, listening to her, um, the bootleg collection immediately uh, became sort of... Um, you know, I mean, this was back in the in the day of cassette tapes, and so yeah. there would be you know a mailing list, and you would say, "Oh, I have this show. Oh, can I swap for this show?" And then you'd record it on your little fucking stereo, and then mail. Yeah. That's yeah. yeah. <laughs> and I had this crate. I had a crate of cassette tapes that I kept for at least ten years. Um, yeah, I, I, them, at least some of them. I don't still have the cassette tapes because when I moved, um, I, I, whatever last ones I had, um, went in the, in the trash with kind of everything else. But, um, I still have an alarming number of Tori Amos bootlegs on my computer. (laughs) Me too. You gotta have every tour. (laughs) Yeah. Every, every, and there are, you know, essential shows on each and yeah, I mean, yeah, before we had this conversation, like you and I were swapping, you know, oh, did you see this version of Yes, Anastasia? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, so the first time I saw her was nineteen was 1996, was um, the uh, Boys for Pele show in Lawrence, Lawrence Kansas. Um, and there were protesters um, because you can't do anything in Kansas without being having some sort of uh, Christian protesters against you. Um, it was nice. I liked it. It was it was it was crazy. It was a crazy show. I mean, yeah, what must have been like a riot? <laughs> <laughs> um. So I was sort of like you know. Um, coinciding with her but you came to her later so what was your sort of um first introduction how were you sort of uh converted to the experience i was young too um but uh so this was around when she was when she'd released the beekeeper so that was when i sort of came into the fandom but not through beekeeper um through like older songs that i downloaded and a pirated copy of scarlet's walk so that was my my way in um and i didn't at first like yes i was downloading live songs and things like that um 
but I mean, because I'd sort of heard of her through older people, uh, no one was listening um, to her in my sort of age range. Um, and also, like, no one, no one was listening. I mean, I was still, I think, 13, 14. So no one was listening to some, someone like her. Um, so that was like a weird, isolated experience. Not at all like, you know, what you sort of had with like, you know, the release of Pele. And, but I'm not envious. <laughs> uh, uh, and at the same time, uh, I was into going into her older stuff. And then she was doing the beekeeper. And then, you know, um, she changed and she, you know, has a family and it's all different now. And there's not going to be a Pele number two, and which is fine, but still. Um, so there was always this, maybe you in a way experienced her in a more pure and direct way. And I sort of experienced her in a sort of the split reality way where I would sort of like time travel around the years and like and she would be in 2005 doing the beekeeper tour and that was an odd experience now when I come to think of it but it wasn't odd at the time but yeah um so odd odd in what way because that there was a um there was a sort of an effort to understand what was going on and how to bridge these two different parts of her career and also trying to figure out what she was trying to do now. Um, which I think wasn't, they weren't sort of um, stupid questions because she herself had said that like she was, the music industry was changing and she was trying to adapt and sort of become maybe an older figure in the music industry and how she was having trouble with that. Um, and as you said before, how the trouble sort of started um, this sort of um, te sort of tension with the fans, like with the super long albums and what was she doing with, you know, the clothes and whatever. Yeah, and the, um, the the super weird interviews and that and sort of everything. And it, it, I mean, it's interesting to me that the the the, sh the most interesting thing to me about the shift that sh that was around the beekeeper. So this is you know um, almost ten years after Boys for Pele. Yeah. There's um, there's a moment where like her music has a and the production of the music has a dramatic shift. Um, her public persona has a, has a dramatic shift um, where she's much less forthcoming and much more, um, you know, um, glamorous with the high-end fashion that is has a weird sort of total lack of taste level. Um, but also... Um, Shit, as she can do when she wants to you know like not talk about stuff yeah and, and sort of like give these very rote answers to every question where where she started you know uh answering every question with well as a minister's daughter you know which became um 
notorious among among the fan base um where was i going with this oh yeah so this is 10 years after after pele um and at, at this point she becomes sort of like weirdly embarrassed of boys for pele um yeah because her, her daughter had found, like, some videos on the internet and watched them. And, like, how old was she then? Like, five, four? I mean, of course she's not going to, you know, I don't know, like that freak out and precious things or something like that. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's a it's this weird thing, though, how she tries to publicly distance herself from what was essentially her greatest moment and, and starts talking, you know... Um, People ask her to release recordings from that era because it's everybody's favorite tour because it was so insane. Um, and she has recordings of every show that she's ever done, so she says. And she just refuses to. Like She just doesn't want to sort of revisit that. Um, and that's really interesting to me that you can kind of have a masterpiece and then uh, you can create a masterpiece and then be really embarrassed by it or think that um or just you know um yeah I, I that to me is is bizarre about who who she's sort of become yeah um I think now she has a different understanding of it because like after the beekeeper era she kind of disowned the beekeeper and said the production was rushed and, like, she doesn't like it. Um, and also, her the way she speaks about Boys for Pele also changed, um, especially now, too. But she still says that, um, like, it's not supposed to be a 24-7 thing, that it's, like, a moment, a release, and then you have to sort of, like, carry on with um, your new normal or something like that. Um, but also at the same time, I think of this sort of not liking the, you know, the great masterpiece moment. Uh, I compare it to another artist, Trent, that, you know, she's sort of worked with. And yeah, I mean, if she has Pele, and I think her sort of disliking and staying away from Pele has to do with how, like, um, rocky that time was for her. I mean, like, it was, yes, it was important that she had to do it, but I guess, you know, that was, like, really difficult for her. Um, and so, like, her understanding of that album is maybe wrapped up in that, and in a similar way, that's how Trent Reznor thinks about the Fragile era, you know, which was, again, released really badly, even the, even worse than probably Pele. Um... And, and then, but I guess he sort of embraced it a lot more the same way he embraced sort of the fans by having a more direct relationship with them. Um, and sort of like lab and navigating the sort of the change in the music industry. So it's interesting to think about the two. Yeah, because he, I think he had much more um, industry support, but not just industry support, but, you know, the fact that he went on tour with David Bowie. So he's yeah. sort of being um, not, you know, well, 
christened or whatever as, as the kind of yeah. next big figure, um, which no one ever sort of did with Tori. And, and she's, she still talks about the fact that, you know, one time Stevie Nicks, you know, didn't, didn't it mention Steve her. Nicks? Really? <laughs> yeah, the rumor is that Stevie Nicks um, sort of praised every, every other sort of female Steve musician Nicks. at the time, but except for her. Yeah. Um, I didn't with Stevie Nicks. <laughs> yeah. Um, she never sort of is open about her influences. Damn her. <laughs> I know. Um, and so she never had that sort of same level of acceptance, which maybe sort of um, doesn't make you want to experiment and doesn't make you want to be super open and um, makes you maybe want to compromise more and, and, and that sort of stuff. If she had had... Um, the same level of acceptance within the industry and within the music community and, and so on and so forth that Trent Reznor had, I think it would have been a different career. But at the same time, um, she's sort of notoriously um, difficult to work with. She's even admitted that. Um, and also she has a tendency, you know, she retreated completely to the coast of England and doesn't collaborate very much or didn't for a long time and didn't participate within the sort of wider musical community. And I think that has, that has some consequences. You know, I mean, the weird thing is listening to her music and like listening to the interviews, you would think that if she was in this position that she's now, um, this sort of weird, you know, black, uh, sheep situation, she would be okay with it because that's what she's been all her life uh, in her sort of like house when she was growing up and when she was trying to find, you know, gain some sort of mainstream acceptance of the girl and the piano thing. So this has been her life. And maybe it's the sort of the idea that, that it never stopped, that um, that's sort of difficult to deal with. Um, because at the same time, she's never had, yeah, she never had, like, acceptance like a man, but she never had the kind of acceptance that PJ and Bjork had. But at the same time, she kind of didn't work for it, because, yes, as you said, she was isolated. And she didn't act like she had this sort of, um, place in, in the music musical community, because then she would have to know about all the people that are sort of her children, her musical children, you know? Um, uh, I, I was really happy when I learned that um, Annie Clark, she was thanking Annie Clark in the liner notes. Um, but now Annie Clark's like a lot more famous than she was when she was playing with, you know, um, like 10 years ago. And, um, and it's only then that she knows about her. I mean, why is she not doing her homework? Right. And, you know, I think that the only time that she sort of had this moment of, um, of collaboration was with Alanis Morissette. And it's like, come on, like you're, yeah, you're, you're better than Alanis. Like, that's not. <laughs> yeah. I mean, she has so many people that she can work with. Um, and I don't know. I mean, yes, she likes to be comfortable and she's shy and she has a sort of a certain comfort zone and maybe that's necessary to, like, do difficult work. You've got to be secure somewhere, you know. But um, 
yeah, I mean, like, she should go out and sort of enrich her, her world. Yeah. Yeah, there's not yeah. I mean there's not a sense that she sort of listens to new artists in any you know, way. That's, I, that's why I freaked about about um Stephen Nick the Stephen Nicks thing because um that's always an excuse for her to not cite her influences, which is always so annoying to me because yeah. Yeah. It's it's that thing of, you know, it's this kind of well I think I think marriage should be abolished, and I think that um, Tori Amos's marriage <laughs> yeah. is a really good example of of why, um, because it, her her career became so much more cloistered, like so much more. You know, her new album is just her and her husband and her daughter, and it's like yeah, just I, you know yes. Annie Clark, like call her. Yeah, I mean, like she would play the guitar for free. Yeah. <laughs> she would I mean totally um, yeah I think she she um, kind of like squeezed the water out of the rock that is now her working sort of way um, the way she works now I mean like that's like totally dry um, I think she has to be open she, she has to open up again that's what I wish for her and also, I want to send like books to for her to read, and yeah. We do want yeah. to send her. Yeah. Well, no, it's funny because um, I was just thinking about I went to a couple of meet and greets, and everybody was always giving her the pressed fairy book, which was just like pressed fairy um, book. Yeah, it's notorious. It was notorious um, at the time, as far as like oh, another another pressed fairy book. Um, it was some, I don't even remember who it was, like some artist uh, did fairy art, but oh, like well, funny fairy yeah, art. On Scarlet's Walk? Maybe. Um, but it was. It started in 96. Like people were giving it to her at, like, at every, every show. Somebody had the book and was giving it to her. Um, but as far as what I would like to give her, um, I wish, I just, I, there are so many weird musicians that I think owe a huge debt to her that I want her to hear. Yeah. There are definitely exactly. there are definitely some books that that I would like to send her, but um <laughs> you know, like I don't I, Alice Notley. I would send her the entire <laughs> the entire <laughs> work of Alice Notley. They're meant to be together. Why are they yeah, not yeah. seeing each other. But yeah, yeah it's be abolished, yeah. Yeah. And we have to kidnap Tori and <laughs> get her out of her house yeah um She'll yeah like because <laughs> you think so um yeah because yeah, she yeah she married her to her engineer or whatever and now and now you know i i part of the the joy of reading the forums are the kind of um complaints about her husband and yeah. his shitty guitar playing and 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 everything else um like he's really he's so really hated <laughs> and i mean not as talented as yoko ono right <laughs> right at least yoko had some stuff going on <laughs> <laughs> just i think 
I believe Mark is a brilliant sound engineer, okay? She, he can do whatever he wants to do, but just stop with the guitar. I think stop everything, the- yeah, I mean, everything will be all right. I don't know. I, th- I know she hates Kaden now, but I, I, I can't believe I miss Kaden, you know? Yeah, that was one of the other things. Um, I think we, I think we assume that we know what's going on with her because she's so forthcoming about very specific things, and then not in any way revealing about other things, including, yeah. but including like Trent Reznor, um, yeah. and who who has been actually sort of more public about. Uh, things going down between them than uh, than she has been, and what happened to her guitarist? Did she have him killed? Where did he go? Why won't she call him? Like, what's what's going on? Do you know the rumors about Kaden? No. What are the rumors about Kaden? Please. Uh, the rumors are that um, he was picking up underage girls, Tory fans, um, you know, like groupies, and so. He had to be, he had to go. That was the rumor. And that Ruby, you know, that song in Scarlet's Wall B-Sides collection, that not that Bowie is supposed to be about him. So that's Oh, the I rumor. just assumed it was about so Mark. That's like a snippet of, um, yeah, what we know. <laughs> yeah, I, I always had, I think I realized this when I was speaking with you. I always had like a weird thing about it um about knowing stuff and her being that open but i think her being that open has everything to do with you know um going into this sort of industry with silent all these years and her being a very loud mouth for a while and she needed to do that for whatever reason um and so it was like that and after, as he said, the marriage, um, we know Mark to be like a very sort of private person. I don't know if it was because of that, but um, there was suddenly a lot of room left for speculation. And that kind of sometimes works like a Rorschach, you know, because you don't know. And you're, you're trying to find out what's going on through the songs. Um, but that's not sort of, I mean, you know, they're not, they're songs. You're not supposed to do that with them. At least that's what I think. Um, but I wonder if this was, I mean, I'm comf- uncomfortable with it in the same way I would be uncomfortable with my friend sort of um, saying something that she might regret later. But I, de- I think I don't understand it in terms of um, like a girl in 94 reading the magazine and seeing that she was going through the same thing, you know, and seeing her say it made, made something uh, mean to her, you know. Um, I, I don't think I understand it in that sense. And also, I don't think that um, the people in the industry understood it in that sense because she was talking about a lot of taboo subjects and I always thought that like maybe this was why she was you know not accepted into the canon and not was never not embarrassing 
and, and, and even in a sort of tiny little way, you know? Yeah, because she was much more embarrassing than sort of PJ Harvey. Um, yeah. But PJ Harvey, you know, PJ Harvey and Tori Amos sort of started in a, in a kind of similar place where they had as many male fans as, as women fans. And then Tori shook them all off with Boys for Paley. Like suddenly there were no straight men at her shows anymore. Like it was just... It was just too much, too much for them. Yeah, um, didn't she say straight men are tortured at my shows? <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's funny. Like, I don't think I've I've met straight men who listen to her or have any interest in her or and are not a little bit, you know, scared of her. Um, yeah. And that's telling. Yeah. And I, and I do think it's similar to something like, um, to someone like Kathy Acker where it's very much a kind of sort of a woman space. You know, I, I was writing the introduction to this book, um, How to Suppress Women's Writing by Joanna Russ. And it was funny to mm-hmm. me um, how much of the sort of press around Tori Amos um, fit into these sort of the ways that the artistic work of women is 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 suppressed or denied or 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 dismissed um and part of that is pretending like somebody is a singularity that they come out of nowhere that they don't have mothers and they don't have daughters that they don't they aren't influenced by anybody and they don't influence anybody and so many women writers are treated like singularities like emily dickinson is supposedly like you know a space alien or whatever um PJ Harvey came out of a much more sort of recognizable past um, musical yeah. but no one was making records like Boys for Pele. I mean it yeah at that at that time it was it really was just like a crazy thing. Um and I don't think people knew what to do with it. Yeah, it was it felt like maybe like an uncontrollable sort of outpouring of something vaguely feminine like which they was like it wasn't at all intelligible for them and in some ways it's not now did we want to talk about the the bad records more did we want to be nicer i mean because i feel like we we could talk about abnormally attracted descent okay abnormally attracted you know this weird thing about abnormally attracted descent um so it's a completely bad record and it was a completely bad record after she seemed completely like ambitious in the interviews about giving a sort of a sonic landscape, something you can sort of like sleep in, you know, um, like and be entertained for hours. And then what came out was what came out. Um, but at the same time, she was doing this like incredibly even more embarrassing visualette stuff, which, okay, but. but Listen to me. Like, PJ Harvey did a similar thing, <laughs> like, a few years later. And then Beyonce did the visual album thing. So she was clearly plugged into something. But it was just the execution that was, like, so uninspired and self-serving. And, like, a way to look at herself, I guess. But, like, really bad. I mean, just really... So, so like bad. It, it was the first time that I felt like... What's um, going? 
Yeah. Well, no, like, like, like she was my mom and I was embarrassed for her. That was that, that level of feeling of like, don't look at my mother. (laughs) Exactly. That kind of secondhand embarrassment. Yeah. Uh, And also in the forums, I don't know if this is, I don't know if like we're actually like onto something, but people were talking about, you know, her being not well, sort of physically. Um, And I think it's sort of, um, I don't know what was going on, you know, we never know um, now, but, um, I think it's telling that people were talking about if she was like, I mean, physically well, um, because first, I mean, this was the first time when the live shows actually, um, suffered. I mean, the shows, I mean, yes, the shows has, I mean, they've been like bad for a while, but this was when she was not able to sing, which has never happened. And, like, to me, um, like, I told you I told you the last time how when I'm thinking about the beekeeper, I'm trying to figure out what happened between Scarlet's Walk and the beekeeper. And so I think that moment is a moment of, like, she, she found out that her brother was dead in a car crash and, like, her mother was having a health situation and the record company was no longer sort of supporting her. Um, like, I mean, she wasn't dropped, but she didn't have the same support that she had around Scarlet's Walk. And her voice was changing in a way that changes sort of when you grow old, I guess. Um, and I wonder if like all the, all these three albums is also a way, a crisis for her where she sort of tried to figure out, uh, what to do with her career um in that very kind of yeah sort of um with the record companies and what kind of a contract that she was going to have and on a sort of very basic how am I going to sing how am I going to present myself you know the surgery the wigs you know the clothes yeah I it's hard not to be what am I trying to say like it I, I do want to be sort of, you know, empathetic and and so on to whatever massive changes were, were I mean, happening. You're clearly loyal. I mean, you're talking about her, you know, like now. So Yeah. Yeah. My my concern was always just like, well the fan base was she was making sort of decisions for about ten years including the kind of tales of librarian the greatest hits package thing um that and and even the a piano collection which I was i think she was trying to undo tales with that a bit don't you think but still the remasters of certain songs were really bad terrible yeah terrible um but it felt like um you know, when, well, even, you know, I remember when Neil Gaiman was doing this, when they were reissuing um, Sandman in all these different formats and there was no new content, but they knew that the fans were going to buy it anyway. Um, yeah, but but treating treating the fans as, as something disposable or um, something to be manipulated um and I feel like the visual lets were part of that too. Um, I feel like a lot of the decisions that she was making were having blowback on the fans in a way that I wasn't um, I wasn't hugely sympathetic toward. 
Um, I mean, was it, was it, I mean, do you mean it in the sense that, um, no matter what I do, they're going to stick around so I can do this like really like useless thing and they'll just, that kind of, yeah, that kind of. And and pretending in the, in this way of like, no, this is, this is, this is what I intended to do. This, I think this is a masterpiece. Um, and um, I'm presenting it in that way, um, even though it didn't really take her very long to kind of backtrack on on some of that stuff. But Midwinter Graces is a is a nightmare, and um, piece by yeah, piece, the book is a nightmare. Yeah, I guess we can say like she did Midwinter Graces for Doug, Doug Morris. Yeah, because he asked. Um, but I mean, do you think it's kind of over? I don't know. I'm like a generally stupidly hopeful person, <laughs> but, um, I don't know. I, I mean, because like with me going back to how I was like, a like I, how I come to love her, um, uh, it was always with el- every album, there was an expectation of like, oh, is she back? You know, that kind of anticipation like do you think that's answered in some way well what do you think of the new record um i like it (laughs) (laughs) i like it so this is an odd thing because i remember when i first listened to abnormally attracted to sin and it was like you know eating my grandmother's cooking and telling myself like really strongly telling myself that it's delicious but it's not (laughs) You know, that kind of like, this is, yeah, this is the moon, you know, we taught you everything. You have to go through with this, you know. Um, so there is that weird way of listening that I developed since The Beekeeper. Um, but I think this one, and everybody's cautious, and I'm like looking at forums, and everybody's saying that this is the best thing since Scarlet. But you don't like Scarlet. <laughs> I like parts of Scarlet. Um, what do you think about Scarlet? Um, my main problem with Scarlet is it's so... Um, Flat. Yeah. The production, right? Well, not the production. The, the, the songs themselves are... It's all kind of mid-tempo. It's all kind of... Um, they all have a very similar structure with the 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 ending, the way the songs end, yeah, yeah, the, the yeah, long notes. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so I just can't listen to it all the way through. I get really bored. And um, that's how you just listen to it. Yeah. 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 It's supposed to be the road trip, right? But yeah. I I like individual songs, but the record itself, like I I can't. I I will get up and start cleaning windows or something just to have something to do um while trying to listen to that record um and the new one i i like sort of i really think some of the songs are beautiful like climb but a lot of it i'm already i'm already kind of skipping so i don't know if she's maybe it's easier to just think of um well, she had 10 years and those 10 years were great. And now she's, now she's sort of doing something else and I don't need her to be who she was during those 10 years, maybe. But, but um, 
write about like old age and menopause and like what happens, you know, things like that. Nobody writes things about things like that. And she claims to now sort of recognize and have an understanding of it. But I mean, she could still write about so many great stuff. And yes, I mean, I, I think I'm happy, you know, I'm happy with the the run of like little earthquakes under the pink and, you know, up to choir girl, even up to Venus, maybe. I mean, that is like an insane run. And um, she should receive all the credit for that. Um, But at the same time, um, like it's tied to her, um, the way she's behaving right now and what she's doing right now. And yeah, it's impossible to sort of disconnect the two. And and for 10 years or something like that, she's been writing songs about I have to get back to myself or we have to get you back to you. You know, like those lyrics keep repeating over and over and over again. But it's been 10 years. It's been 10 years, lady. It's been 10 years. Yeah. I mean, you know, of all people, you are the person who's supposed to, like, know this shit. You know, know. (laughs) talking about this all your career. Um, Yeah. In in the way that somebody who wrote Boys for Pele to end up in the marriage that she did is horrifying to me. Um, Because what if what if if I accidentally get married slash brainwashed? Like, what if you're never going to do this again? Because you you, you seen Tori do it. So you're never going to do it. All right. So you're going to write Pepe and then it's going to be, you know, all on fire, everything. So it's, it's going to be the world from then on. <laughs> <laughs> I do have this completely irrational fear that somehow I'm going to accidentally get married that, and, yeah, lose my mind. I don't know where that fear comes from. I mean, obviously, if you sort of look at the women in my family, you will see where that fear comes from. But, um, but it's a real... I I have palpitations sometimes about uh, about that kind of stuff. I don't know, just like make tea and it's gonna be all right. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Um, good, good. This is good. We'll abolish marriage till then. It's not gonna be a problem. Yeah, I really. There's still just such a part of me that just. Um, wants to go back in time and keep Tori from meeting Mark, you know? And maybe um, Trent more, you know, like doing stuff with him. <laughs> I mean, that would have been awful too. But in a good way. Yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah, I wonder if this is why I'm sort of um antagonistic towards ideas of like healing and and comfort and that sort of stuff um because it makes terrible art it's supposed to stay uncomfortable and you're supposed to continuously deal with that forever this has been a forever dog production executive produced by joe cilio alex ramsey and brett boehm for more podcasts please visit foreverdogproductions.com